Thank you, Seth. Uh, If you got your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and take it out and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Uh, My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and today it's going to be my privilege to open up the Word and lead us in our study of it. It's, uh, It's something I'm excited about this morning. This is the first time I've preached in a little over a month. I was a little worried that maybe I've forgotten how. So if you see evidence of that this morning, just keep it to yourself. I don't need to, to hear that. So, uh, but we're going to look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, diving back into the study that, uh, that David and Tom have been keeping us through in, over the last couple of weeks uh, and starting the, uh, the back half of the book of Colossians this morning as we get into chapter 3. Uh, so as you're turning there, uh, if you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper looks like this. It, uh, you can slip your hand up. Alex will make sure that you get one. It has our text in it, some space to take notes, a little outline of the sermon. So I want to make sure you get one of those if you would like one. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. While you're turning there this morning, I want to kind of set the table for us. And and to do that, let me first ask a couple questions. Number one, is there anyone in the room this morning who is currently in elementary school? Just one? There you go. I was going to say, I figure we should have two. So we've we've got two elementary school students who are with us this morning. So you guys will be able to follow what I'm saying here in a minute. Do we have anyone in the room, show of hands, who has finished elementary school? Good, I was hoping I didn't out anybody this morning, but it looks like we're all covered. Fantastic. Everybody has been through or is currently in elementary school. And when you are or are in elementary school, maybe you had this experience before where you were a little distracted while your teacher was talking. And uh, those of you who are teachers are going to know the other side of this one too. So, But maybe you were distracted by something you were doing at your desk, coloring, or maybe you were having a conversation with a friend while the teacher was trying to teach. And the teacher got your attention and, and tried to refocus you. And, and maybe they said, hey, eyes up here, eyes up here. And you look up at the teacher and continue to follow along with the lesson. Now, you might have tried to defend yourself by thinking, well, you know, I I was really listening, right? That's the first thing. Parents, teachers, whenever you call out a kid for not listening, I was listening. But we know that our eyes, where we focus, betrays where our attention is, right? So that's, that's what that phrase means. Eyes up here. Hey, look up here at me. Put your focus here so that I know you're listening and that you're following along with what's being said. Well, today, in a a way, Paul is going to be saying to the Colossians, hey, eyes up here, focus on Christ. If you're familiar with Paul's writing, every time he writes a letter, more or less, he makes a turn at a certain point in the letter where he stops talking as much about doctrine, about the gospel, the foundational things that we're supposed to believe, and he starts to talk about, okay, what do we do in light of those truths? How should we live because these things are true? And this morning, we're going to start to see that turn happen in the book of Colossians. Paul has set up, here's who Christ is. Here's what he has done. Here's what the world is trying to distract you with. Instead of following that route, like Tom talked about last week, eyes up here, look at Christ, focus on Christ. And once you lock in on that, here's the things you need to be doing to live out that reality in your life. He's about to give them a lot of very practical, very specific instructions on how to live. But before he does that, he calls them to check their focus. So that's what I want us to do today. We're going to get into some very practical teaching on living the Christian life over the next couple of months. But before we do that, we need to set the right framework so that this just doesn't become do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. But where are we focused? 
Have we locked our eyes up here on Christ, on his death, his resurrection, and patterned our Christian living after that? So let's look at the text, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, and then we will jump in and start looking at this text in detail. Paul says in 3 verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's God's word to us this morning. Let's pray as we continue. Our good Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, by your word, through your spirit, to your glory. In Christ's name we ask this this morning. Amen. All right, so chapter 3, verse 1, picks up right at the end of chapter 2. So let's think back to what we talked about last week. Uh, remember, Tom took us through the zombie apocalypse. Best sermon title of the series so far. We're going to try to top him later on, but right now Tom is the leader in the clubhouse. And when he talked about a zombie apocalypse, he set up this notion that we have died, right? We have died with Christ. We are dead, and so the dead do not live in the same way that the living live. We can't have died with Christ, but then go back to our old way of living. We're going to be fundamentally different, and we can't coexist with the way that we used to be. Since we've died with Christ, we don't submit to the world's rules and regulations anymore, this week, though, Paul is going to use a very similar pattern in his argumentation, but it's going to be the flip side. Last week, we looked at, since you've died, you've also died to the things of the world. This week, we're going to look at, since you've been raised with Christ, you've been raised to put your focus and attention above where Christ is, the same pattern, but we're looking at the flip side, the resurrection side, rather than as much focus on the fact that we have died to the world. The common paradigm, like we said earlier in Paul's letters, is that right doctrine leads to right living. You make your way through Romans, through Galatians, through Ephesians. In Paul's letters, you'll notice a focus in the early chapters on the ins and outs of the gospel, what it is that Christ has done for us, what we should believe. And then at a certain point, a turn happens, and Paul begins to talk about what we should do, how we should live in light of that reality. Well, in Colossians, this is the turn. These four verses are the pivot from what we've been talking about through the first two chapters about the gospel, about its supremacy, about Christ being the ruler over all things, and, and then asking, okay, what do we do with this? How do we live? And really, these four verses kind of function as an overarching theme statement for everything that is going to come over the next couple of chapters. Right? He's going to tell us, we've been raised with Christ, we, he's seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above. How do we do that? Well, in a, in a way, we do that by doing everything he's about to instruct us on in the rest of chapter 3. It's going to affect what we put away from our lives. It's going to affect what we put on in our lives. It's going to affect our home life, our work life, every single aspect of who we are. In short, the, the theme of this verse today is if you have been raised with Jesus, you should be about the things that Jesus is about. Right? If you get nothing else from what I say, let that be the stake that we drive in your mind. Is if you've been raised with Christ, you should be about the things that Christ is about. 
So verse one, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So we're to seek the things that are above, and specifically, this is a really helpful line that he gives here, specifically, we're to seek the things that are where Christ is. And where is Christ? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So this first verse, there's a couple of things that that we need to dig into and point out. The first thing to note is that this is not something, the seeking the things that are above, this is not something that comes naturally to us. It's not something you're just going to stumble into in your day-to-day living. In fact, it takes a supernatural act to bring us to this point. We have to die with Christ and be raised with Christ in order to seek the things that are above. We have to be transformed by Jesus. Right, this, is, this is important to keep in your mind as we start moving through these verses on practical living, that in order to do the things we're being called to do, we have to be transformed by the gospel. We have to have Jesus do something in us to take us from death to life. We must die with Christ, like Paul talked about last week, and with it, die to the way that this world works, the way this world tries to find favor with God. We die with Christ, and we have to be raised with him. To be in new life. The old has gone. The new has come. We are a new creature in Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. So have you grasped that reality? The reality that that living, Christian living, comes from a life that's been transformed by Christ. But not only have you grasped it, but more importantly, are you grasping it now? In the way that you live today, have you grasped this reality that Faith that Christianity is not a means of self-improvement, it's it's not a means of self-fulfillment, it is rather a pattern of living that is based on the reality of Christ's life and death and resurrection. A transformation has to happen to you that you can't bring about, that only Christ can do. In order to live, you must die. And I want you to notice from last week and this week, the gospel is a transformation And Jesus' passing from death to new glorified life is given to us as a pattern for understanding the transformation. We're told that a spiritual transformation must happen in our lives in order to follow after Christ, to do the things we're going to do. The way that we understand that transformation is by looking at Jesus. He died. He was raised. Just like that, we must die. We must be raised. That's why baptism is a big deal, because it's a picture of that reality, that we've been buried with Christ. We've been raised to walk in new life. Our life is not our own anymore. We have to to see this pattern and then know that we base our spiritual living on this reality that's taken place. John Calvin put it this way. He said, ascension follows resurrection. Hence, if we are members of Christ, we must ascend into heaven because he, on being raised up from the dead, was received up into heaven. So Calvin's saying here, use what has happened to Jesus as a pattern for understanding our spiritual walk and journey. Christ was raised, and this text says we have been raised with him. And what happened to Jesus after his resurrection? Well, he was ascended to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father, and our attentions and affections should be raised and ascend with him. We put our focus on where he is. We follow Christ in our living. So this is not something that you, you just stumble into. This is something that, this, this pattern of living is something that is dependent on a transformation happening in your life. Our action is grounded in what Jesus has done. But then we're told, seek things that are above where Christ is. 
seated at the right hand of God. That's where our focus is to rest. So we need to ask ourselves, all right, if this is where my focus needs to be, on Christ, seated at the right hand of God the Father, what does it mean that Christ is seated at God's right hand? Why is this language used here by Paul? What is symbolized by God's right hand? Well, you read through in the scriptures and you find that the, the right hand, this position of at the right hand, is a symbol of power and authority and closeness. Right? That Jesus, being at the right hand of God the Father, has full authority to act on God the Father's behalf. All of his power, all of his authority rests on Jesus Christ. And we have this idea a little bit today. You hear someone referred to as my right-hand man that's, that's saying that they're, they're close to me and that they can, do, they can act on my behalf. We are, we are a team. We're doing this together. And so we're told that, that, God, or that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. That's where we place our focus. And here we find a vital truth, because if we're going to focus on the things above, one of the big temptations that we're going to have with this text this morning is this idea, well, I need to be focused on heavenly things and not on earthly things. And as people who live 24-7 on earth, that can be something we find very, very difficult to do. How do I, do I need to like detach myself in, in a Buddhist kind of way from everything that's going on here and just think about high spiritual things? Well, no, we're told to focus on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We're picturing Christ in his place of rule and authority. And so I ask you this morning, where does Christ's rule and authority, authority extend to? Everywhere. So this isn't just ignore everything that's going on around you and focus on these heavenly realities. It's focus on everything as being under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. So you don't live like the world lives. You live like Christ would have you to live. You live with a view to his rule. So this is a helpful reminder that what Paul's calling for here in these verses is not a pie-in-the-sky, detached, kind of Gnostic spirituality. The divide between heavenly and earthly is not about location, but rather about where our focus rests and what ruler holds our allegiance. Are we going to live under the rule of the God of this world, or are we going to live under the rule of the true conquering king, the one who is seated at the Father's right hand? So we have to be transformed by Jesus, and we have to see his rules extending to all of creation, all of the earth. That's where our allegiance is held. From three, chapter 3, verse 1, if we've been raised with Christ, we should seek the things that are above where Christ is, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So quick questions to take your pulse as we move through the text here. Have you been transformed? Has Christ transformed who you are? Have you been raised with Christ? And that necessitates that you first died with Christ. We're going to dig into that in more detail here in a minute. But are you trying to live the Christian life as just a pattern of self-improvement? Or have you been gripped? Have you been grabbed? Have you been transformed by the message that Jesus Christ bore your sin in his body on the cross, paid your penalty, and rose victorious over the grave? That he invites you into simple repentance from your sin and faith and trust in him to welcome you into his kingdom. Are you trying to do it yourself? Or have you been transformed fundamentally and forever changed by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. If we miss that foundation, then even if we try to follow all the commands that we're going to get in verses 5 and following over the next few weeks, 
It's not going to get us anywhere because we're going to fail. We're going to fall on our faces. We need a foundation. We need a Christ who can deal with our sin, who transforms us to make us like Christ, who is more powerful than our own efforts at Christian living. But once we understand our need to be transformed by Christ, we also need to understand that we should be transfixed by Jesus Christ as well. Right? That's the idea here. If we've been raised with Christ, transformed, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So he's, he's making a contrast here. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things above. And don't set your mind on things that are on earth. All right, now hold on though. Because here it's going to get a little confusing. Because didn't we just say that Christ's rule and reign extends to everything, to over all of the earth, to over all creation? And we're supposed to, in focusing on him at the right hand of God the Father, see his rule and reign over earthly things as well. So what is it? Are we supposed to think about things on earth or are we not supposed to think about things on earth? Are we to be concerned with the earthly or are we to be concerned with the heavenly? What is he getting at here? Well, I think it's helpful, like it is often in our study of the Bible, to think with some context, right? Chapter three follows chapter two. What did we talk about last week? What did Tom lead us in looking at? What was the great temptation and struggle the Colossians were facing? Well, they were being lured away by legalism. This idea that they could get closer to God by performing certain things, by doing these spiritual disciplines and rituals and following after the teachings of men and the teaching of the world. Paul is telling them here, as he did last week, that they died to such things. You died to Christ. Why, if you've died with him, do you still submit to the world's rules and regulations? And here he's saying that they've been raised with Christ. And since they've been raised with him, they should have their focus on Christ, not on all those rules and regulations. All right, think back, Colossians 2, 20 through 21. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? So this verse 2 right here where he says, set your mind on things above and not on things that are on the earth, this isn't Paul telling them to be detached and unconcerned about this life that they lead because he's going to give them a lot of instruction in the following verses on how to live in this life, in this world. What he's saying is don't follow the world's spiritual rules, right? These people were so concerned with the do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul's saying don't be concerned with those earthly things. You're, You're dead to that. But seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things above, on Christ and his teachings and his words and his law, not on the laws of men. Because, remember, it's all based on the transformation, because those earthly patterns are not sufficient for us anymore, right? These things that the the false teachers were trying to lure the Colossians away with are not enough to hold our attention and affections once we have beheld Christ and who he is. We're dead to the world. We're dead to its way of thinking. The only thing that should transfix us now, that should satisfy our attention and our longings is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What Paul's essentially doing here in the first few verses of chapter three is he's calling the Colossians to a much higher and loftier spirituality than they were being enticed to by the false teachers. 
Right? Think of Tom's sermon and the, the text he covered last week as Paul is chopping down the roots of the false teacher's tree. He's chopping down the legalism. Why do you go back to this? You've died to this. There's no reason to submit to these rules and regulations. But Paul doesn't just chop the tree down and leave nothing in its place. No, he he chops down the tree of legalism and he points them to the more glorious tree of Christ, of the gospel, of the transformation that he brings into our life. That's what's happening here in verse 3. It's the contrast. Like, don't, don't meddle with the spiritual rules and regulations of the world. Look at Christ. Set your mind on him, on his things, on his teaching, on his priorities. Paul's calling to them calling them to something greater and loftier than the legalism that, they, that the false teachers were enticing them with. Let's give another quote from John Calvin in very John Calvinish language. He says, when we perceive what God recommends to us is much more lofty and excellent than what men inculcate, fun word there, our alacrity of mind increases for following God so as to disregard men. Now, I don't think anybody used the words inculcate or alacrity in your conversation this last week. If you did, I don't know what to say. But what Calvin is saying here is basically once we realize that what God is offering is better than what men are offering, we want to follow God and not men, right? If you've got two people standing in front of you and one of them has a saltine cracker that's been left out for three days and is stale, and the other has a cheeseburger that's fresh off the grill, you're going to say, I want to follow the guy with the cheeseburger because he's got something that's better. That's the idea here is that what Paul is trying to do is say, why would you go back to all this stuff that doesn't fulfill, that doesn't satisfy when Christ is better? Christ is more. Christ gives you what you need to live the life, to live in this world, to be in this world, but not of it. We need, to be, we need to have our affections transfixed by Jesus. We need to see him for who he is. We need to behold the wonder of what he has accomplished on our behalf because our affections drive our actions, right? That's the idea. That's why we want to put our focus up here on Christ. That's why we want to be transfixed by him because what we are transfixed by, what we love, what we are passionate about will drive the way that we act, what kind of place does God hold in your affections? What kind of place does God hold in your attention? The latter is a great way to diagnose the former. When I say, you know, what kind of place does God hold in your affections? Do you love God? I I think so. But what about in your attention? What do you pay attention to? What fills your mind? What what kind of place does God have in the things that you think about? Do, Do you ever daydream about God? When your mind is empty, and some of us, that's easier to do than others, but when when your mind is empty, what rushes in to fill it? What do you think about? Do you think about God ever? Do you think about his word? Do you think about his people? See, when we're transfixed by something, when we set our minds on something, when it captures our attention, our affections, it, it tugs at our minds and our hearts. It keeps us coming back, like, like a song that keeps you tapping your foot as it sticks in your head. At our house, 
the, the soundtrack from the movie The Greatest Showman has been playing pretty much on repeat for the last three or four weeks. Uh, we went and saw the movie. It's a fun movie. I've seen it once. Jordan's seen it twice. Heather's seen it three times. And so it's, you can't go very long in our house without either hearing the songs being played or one of us is like humming it or whistling it as we go about the day because it, it gets in there and it grabs your attention and, and it, it doesn't go away. It, it sticks with you. Think about maybe a scene from a film or a paragraph from a book that, that keeps coming back to your mind time again. I was talking with Flynn this morning, and we were, we were talking about The Lord of the Rings. And he mentioned the fact that, you know, that when he feels down and depressed and sad, you just want to turn on the, the clip of the eye of Sauron imploding as, at the end of the movie as victory is won. And it, and it, it, it makes you feel happy again. And it, it's good. Think of things from movies or stories that do that to you. You keep coming back to them. Think about maybe the remembered taste of a food that has you counting the days until you have it again. I've discovered this little thing called sriracha over the last few weeks. I know I'm a little late to this party, but it's fantastic. And I made this sauce a few weeks ago, this honey sriracha sauce, and it's had me like looking over the last couple of weeks. What could I put that on? My entire recipe search has been based on, will it take honey sriracha sauce and will that be good on it? It has me wanting to come back. I think about it. I plan to see what I can do to get back to it. We have affections that draw us to things. What does that for you? What is it that keeps you tapping your foot? What is it that keeps replaying in your head, that that keeps making you want something, desire something, think about something? And do things concerning God ever do the same? Do you ever find yourself drawn to a passage in God's word like you're drawn to a scene from a movie? Do you ever find yourself singing a, a song that speaks of God's truth. One of these ones that we've sang this morning or something like it, not only because of what the melody does, because the music is good, but because that truth is something that you need and you cling to and you hold to. Do the things of God ever transfix your attention because they have your affections, because you love God? Well, I think if we were to to take a show of hands like we did earlier, Maybe that happens sometime for you, but I I imagine for most of us, it doesn't happen as much as we would like. We know that our affections should be taken by Christ more than they are normally. And so we have to ask, how how do we cultivate this? How How do we get better at doing this? How do we allow our attentions and our affections to be grabbed more by Jesus? How do we set our minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth? Well, thankfully, it's not rocket science. It's not that difficult to keep in mind and, and to figure out how to cultivate things. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but it is easy to understand. We must go to the Word. Right, a couple things. First, note the language that we've seen so far. It's intentional language. Set your mind on things that are above. Seek the things that are above. Set, seek. These are things that you do. Again, it's not going to happen by accident. You're not going to stumble into it. If you don't set out to seek the things of Christ, to set your mind on things above, you're not going to get there. You're not going to be of any eternal use unless you are actively trying to do these things. So how do we cultivate it? Number one, it's intentional. It doesn't happen by accident. But it's also important to note the way that the biblical writers use the term seek. When we hear the word seek and we hear seek the things that are above, I think for most of us, if you're like me, 
you think, of, you think of seek like in the context of hide and seek. And, and what happens when you play hide and seek is somebody goes and hides and the other person has to seek them. You don't know where they are, so you've got to walk around opening each closet door and looking around and looking under beds and under tables to find them. That's the way that I think we conceive of seeking. That's not really the way the biblical writers use the word seek, especially in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, which would have shaped Paul's thinking in a, in a way that, that is bigger than even we can really imagine, in the Old Testament, the Bible writers use the word seek not to talk as much about looking for something that's lost or hidden, but about diligently pursuing and returning to the place where a thing is known to be found. Let me give you a little illustration. So let's, let's think about it in search of seeking water. To an Old Testament writer, usually seeking water would be less about going on a prospecting mission, trying to discover a source where water could be found. Seeking water would be more a matter of diligently making a difficult journey day after day to a well. You know where the well is. You know that there's water there, but you seek it day after day repeatedly. You're going to that place to get the water that you need. That's the way that the Old Testament writers use the word seek. And so that can inform and help us in our concept of seeking the things that are above. How do we seek the things that are above? When we're told to do this, we're not being told to exercise a spiritual skill that some people have and some don't. If you think about seeking in terms of finding a lost thing, you think about maybe you know, these guys who do, like, do tracking, who are like outdoorsmen and can look at prints on the ground and tell where a thing went and what it's doing. And I look at the ground and I just see dirt and grass and leaves and it doesn't help me at all. So Seeking spiritually is not a skill that some people have and some people don't. It is the, it's centered around the fact that we know where to look. We know where these things are found. We know that God has revealed himself to us in his word. He's told us who he is. He's told us what things or how to think about things from his perspective. We go to his word in order to seek the things that are above, in order to have our minds shaped. Are you being shaped by God's word? Now, that's not the same thing as asking, do you read your Bible? You can read the Bible without being shaped by it. So if we're going to say, how can we set our minds on the things above? We know where to go. We know where to seek. How do we go about reading the word in order to be shaped the way that we need to be shaped? Well, first thing, we're going to have to take some time. We're going to have to dig down deep into the word. We're going to have to let it mold and shape us. We're going to have to read it with some space built in for God to do some speaking into our lives. Listen to this. This is a quote from, uh, from Alec Mateer, a British scholar and pastor. And he says, superficial, hurried Bible reading will not do. It's like being where treasure is to be found, but then leaving without any treasure to carry off. Stay and do some panning. Take your pick and do some mining. Secondly, stay in the light until your eyes get used to it, and then you'll begin to see clearly. Again, that takes time, does it not? Coming out of darkness into light, we come into a situation where at least seeing is possible, yet we can see nothing at first because the very light blinds our eyes until we acclimate. The idea he's getting at here is when you read the Word, it takes time. And there are days when you know, I'm tempted to just open up the word and, and read a quick few verses and then close it and go on my way. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to stuff the word into a corner wherever you can. 
We want to be people who are drawn to the book, who are filling our minds with it as much as we can. But do you ever take time, do you ever build in opportunities for that slow burn as you read? To read, to pray, to reflect, to meditate, to let your eyes acclimate so that you can see clearly what God is doing. To seek the things that are above, we have to park ourselves at the source. We have to take the word in. We have to make it our home. But we don't just have to take the word in. We also have to do what it says. Right? It's what James tells us in James 1, 22 through 24. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Why do you look into a mirror? You look to, to know what you look like. You get ready in the morning and you see, hey, my hair looks like a raccoon just nested in my head for three days. I need to do something about that. But then you turn away from the mirror and you don't do anything about it. You just go on your way. The mirror has served no purpose. It hasn't helped you at all. And what James is saying is when we open God's word and we read it and we don't do anything with it, it has about as much value as that mirror in that case. Be doers of the word. Put into action the things that you read. So, to put this in the context of our, our passage today, we saw earlier that the things that are above the thing, are the things that are related to Jesus' rule and authority over all of life and the world. So having taken in, taken in what the Bible says, how can we be doers in that respect? If Jesus' authority is over all things, and we want to have a God-shaped view of all things, How can we go from being hearers of the word to doers in that respect? Well, we pause and we reflect on what God is teaching us when we go to live life. When you have decisions to make about what to do, how to act, what to value, pause and reflect on what God has been teaching you and let that drive your living. When you have decisions to make, do you ever take a second and pause and ask yourself, what would God have me to do about this? How, how could I do this with a kingdom mindset? Tom talked a little bit about this last week. We've got to slow down. We've got to let the Bible inform our living. When you talk to a friend who's dealing with difficulties or wrestling with questions, pause and reflect on what God has been teaching you and let that inform what you say and the way you respond. This is a big one, I think, for us. When you turn on the news and hear the latest controversy or tragedy or hot take, Pause and reflect on what God has been teaching you and let that shape the way you think about, pray over, and respond to events. It's a matter of taking everything that's coming into our life, friendships, decisions, events, conversations, and then running them through the filter of God's word and allowing God's word to shape what we do in response to what this life brings our way. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun rising, not only because I can see it, but because by it I see everything else. If we are setting our minds on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, it's going to have that effect on us. We're going to see him, but we're going to start to see everything else in light of him, in light of who he is, in light of the transformation that he's brought into our lives. So we get into the word, we listen to what Christ has to say, we look and we, we meditate diligently on him, and then that begins to shape our conception of the world and the way that we live. That's what it is to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above, to be transfixed by Christ 
and have it transform the way that we live in the here and now. But then in verse 3, Paul revisits the foundation behind these exhortations, and he focuses the application on an even more personal level. So we've been kind of big picture, seek Christ, put your focus up here, eyes up here, and he's going to bring it down to a very personal uh, application right now for us. And that's that we should lose ourselves in Jesus. We should lose ourselves in Jesus. Since we have died with Christ, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So since we've died with Christ, our lives are now hidden with Christ. And then the flip side in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we've died with Christ and our lives are hidden. And when Christ appears, we'll also appear. What is he getting at here? What does this mean? Well, on a high level, it's a reiteration of what we've just been talking about, right? Our thoughts, our affections, our allegiances, they're not our own anymore. Everything we are, our identity is wrapped up in Christ, not in self. And it's also a reminder to us that this life, when we live this life with the focus that he's calling us to, with our minds fixed on what's above, it will quite possibly make us look odd and foolish to the world that is still seeking earthly things. Think about it. Our strength, our hope, our glory, our joy is hidden with Christ in God. It's not readily visible to the world around us because they reject the place, the one with whom it is hidden. What is now our joy and comfort will not be plainly seen until Christ appears and we share in his glory. Right? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. If we are focused on the things above, we will inevitably be thought of as silly by the watching world. If we desire to be accepted and admired by the world, we're never going to get it by doing the things that God wants us to do. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And because of that, you're not going to be able to live in the same way as your friends, as your peers, as those who, who live according to this world, who have their mind focused on these earthly rules and regulations. So what do we need to do with that truth? We need to be wary of this in our discourse with other people. As you're talking to people, as you're talking to people about your faith, about the way you live your life, uh, don't try to frame your Christianity as something that just fits in nicely with this world. That, you know, I'm mostly like you, just, you know, just a little bit different. I do some different things on Sundays, but, you know, it doesn't make that big of a transformative difference in my life. Don't be tempted to soften the corners, to hide the jagged edges of your faith. Let it be different. Let it be stark in its differences from the culture that's around you. Right? Don't shape your Facebook or your Twitter feeds by what you think all of your friends want to see and trying to, to kind of fit in with a little bit of a Christian veneer. We should be salt and light to a watching world, right? The way we live our lives should be full of hope and should be intriguing to those who watch us from the outside. But I would suggest to you that it should be strange in its intrigue. It shouldn't fit snugly into the world's categories. Our life should seem other to the people who know us. There should be a marked and mysterious difference to us because we've placed our hope, we've fixed our identity, our joy, our glory in a place that they can't see. It's hidden with Christ. They don't know Christ. They don't see Christ. And so they should see us 
And, and the way that we live should just seem really, really bizarre. Try to think of a good way to kind of illustrate and communicate this. And this might not be perfect, but we're going to go with it anyway. Let's say this morning that I have a diamond. And I take this diamond and I wrap it up in a piece of paper and I toss it and hide it in this trash can. Now, if I have a diamond hidden in this trash can, I'm probably going to be paying an inordinate amount of attention to this trash can over the course of the day, right? You know, I might be standing by it, you know, peeking in it every now and then, make sure that the diamond in the paper is still there. I'm probably not going to venture too far from it. And to all of you who don't know about my diamond in the trash can, you're thinking, what on earth is this idiot doing with the trash can? Like... <laughs> It's garbage. There's old coffee in there. Like, why would you pay so much attention to that? It's not until you understand the treasure I have that is hidden away there that my actions make any sense. Our Christian living should be similar to that. People should see the things that we're doing because we've staked our treasure in Christ. We found our hope in him. When they don't understand that transformation that we talked about earlier, the way that we live should seem a little bit alien, a little bit strange, a little bit foreign. Be okay with that. Make your home with that, because when Christ appears, then also your hope and glory will appear with him. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. There is an even more personal application, though, that I think is especially helpful to us and to our culture here. Right? According to Paul, our identity is fully wrapped up in Christ. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We are dead. We are hidden. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our glory. But what kind of culture do we live in? We live in a culture that worships self, that is all about self, all about me, all about what I want, what I desire. Right? We, we self-identify. We self-determine. We self-esteem. We self-actualize, we self-fulfill, we do all of these things to hold up self, and because there is nothing that can bring lasting fulfillment and satisfaction in myself, we self-destruct at the end of the day. But this is what our culture strives for, goes after. The message of Jesus, though, is not, hey, build a better you, right? That can be a temptation for us who are in the church is to just try to, hey, everybody wants to, to improve themselves. Well, let's just pitch Christianity as self-improvement. Have your best life now. Build a better you. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what he's teaching. The message of Jesus is you have to die. You have to die. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If Jesus wasn't above dying, why would we think we are? Why should we seek that which is above and not the things of this world? Because we're dead and our home is above. Our identity is above. Everything about us is tied to Jesus, hidden with him. And so it makes absolutely no sense to want to cling to something that's in ourselves. The way that we find life is by, is by putting self to death, by turning from self. Right? Matthew 10, 38 through 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't live the life that DJ Williams wants to live anymore. I live the life that Christ wants to live. Christ lives in me and through me. We still live in the flesh. We still live in this world. Jesus doesn't just transport us magically to heaven. But our life is not our own. 
We live because Christ lives in us. And it can be tricky, though, trying to figure out, am I doing that? Am I living for Christ? Am I allowing him to live through me? Because we have to take care to avoid a false, sacred, secular dichotomy. What I mean by that is it can be very easy to think when I'm doing expressly Christian things, then I'm living for Christ. But if I'm doing things that aren't expressly and explicitly Christian, then I must be living for me. So for me, on Sundays when I'm here pastoring at Trinity, well, then I'm living for Christ. But on Monday through Friday when I go to work at UPS and I'm doing my job there, well, that's just me living for self. It's not that simple. Because remember, Christ's authority extends everywhere. If our focus is on him, it's going to transform the way we live in both realities, in our Christian walk and discipline and in our worldly walk and discipline, in the things that we live in this world, the jobs, the school, the relationships, the friends, the family, the parenting. All of those things are going to be transformed by Christ. So it's not just a matter of to allow Christ to live in me, I just do nothing but expressly spiritual things 100% of the time. But that doesn't get us off the hook from asking ourselves some hard questions because we should look different. As you read the Bible, what's important to God? Just think through that today. Just take some time. What is important to God? What, if I had to make a list by reading the Bible of the things that God seems to care a lot about, what would be on the list? Now, what's important to me? And is there any overlap there? If Paul took this attitude and this worldview that he's encouraging here about setting our minds on things that are above, if Paul took that attitude and he came to work at your job, what do you think it would look like? What if he came to be a student at your school? What if he came to be a friend to your friends, Christian or non-Christian? What if he came to be a spouse to your spouse? What if he came to be a parent to your children? What if he came to be a child to your parents? And he embodied this attitude, this seeking that which is above. What would it look like? And what do you need to do to make it look more like that? If we live like this, if we live focused on things that are above and not the things that are on earth, would there be some tricky things that we've got to figure out? Sure there will. There'll be hard questions. There'll be hard decisions to make. There'll be things that are, are tough to, hey, should I, should I do this or should I do this? I don't know. It seems, it seems difficult. But I'd suggest to you that our biggest problem isn't figuring out the tricky things. It's living out the things we already know we should be doing. And I say that because I know that's my biggest problem. If you were to ask, DJ, how do you need to live at home? How do you need to live at work? How do you need to live in all these areas setting your mind on that which is above? I could give you a lot of answers, and they would be easy answers, and then you could ask, well, so are you doing all those things? Well, sometimes. Before we worry about all the difficult, tricky questions that we've got to figure out, let's do the things that we know we ought to do. Let's put into practice what the Bible says we need to be living like. Let's be transformed by Christ. Let's be transfixed by him, and let's lose self. Let's be people who are less about me and what I want, and more about what would Christ have me to do with my life? Because my life's hidden with him. It's hidden away with Christ and God. I live because he lives through me. So what does that look like today, tomorrow, the next day? So how how do we do this? How do we seek the things that are above, set our minds on things above, 
and yet still live in a hostile world here and now that doesn't understand the hope that we have? How do we set our mind on heavenly things while still living on the earth and going to work and going to school and having relationships? How do we keep at all of this for more than half an hour before we become so full of despair that we just jump off a bridge? How do I do it? Because that's the kind of frustration that it feels like we run up against, isn't it? Okay, I want it today. I want to set my mind on things above. And then by lunchtime, we're already so far into the ditch that we think it's just, it's not worth it. Well, we remember that we have died. And our life is hidden away with Christ in God, which is the most secure place it could possibly be. Where would you rather have your life than that? Hidden with Christ in God. Your security with God is not dependent on your performance in the here and now. On how well you do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. On how well you submit to rules and regulations. Your life is secure with Christ and God because you've died with Christ. And you've been raised with him. And one day when he appears in glory, your hope will be revealed. You will not be put to shame. This life will be full of struggle and full of hard days. Days when you nail this and days when you fail this. But all the same, Christ is holding you secure. Your life is hidden with him. Be encouraged in that this morning. Remember that Jesus said in John 6, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, eyes up here, and believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You put your hope in Christ. You're transformed by his life and death and resurrection. We seek to follow him, to put our mind on things above, not on things of this world. But we have the secure and solid hope that one day he will be revealed in glory and our hope will be revealed with him. Regardless on if I had one bad day and six good days this week, or one good day and six bad days, or some mixture in between, my hope is hidden with Christ in God. Right? This is the paradox of faith. The impossible, which is what this life feels like it is sometimes, the impossible is made so simple a child can do it. We put our focus on him. We try to live each day, allowing him to live in us. The journey that feels as if we will never complete it has an ending that's actually already secured by the God of the universe. He's set us. He's hid us away with him. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be diving into the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4, and it's going to be lots of practical living. Here's what we do because of this reality that Christ has done. And the right response is going to be obedience. Next week, it's going to be put to death what is earthly in you, and here's all the things that that is, and then put on in its place these other things. And so obedience to that scripture is, I need to get rid of these things in my life and I need to add in these things. But if we try to do all of that without getting this foundation right and fixing our mind on what is above, knowing we've been raised with Christ, we're going to fail. We have to get this. And so be reminded of this. We're about to take communion. We wrap every week, we wrap our teaching of the word by taking communion, by coming together and Taking, uh, partaking of bread, of wine that, that reminds us of Christ's death and his resurrection and the fact that he's coming again.
So today, as you come to the table, come weak, come frail, come fragile, come failing, but come expecting to see Christ, to be reminded of his glory. So that on Tuesday afternoon, when you're trying to live with an eye to things above and you're struggling and you're failing, you'll remember it's Christ where your security is. It's Christ where your foundation is. You've been transformed by him. When we come to the table this morning, when you partake of the bread and of the wine, hear the voice of God call out to you in the midst of your distractions, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your discouragement, and hear him say, eyes up here. Look to Christ as your strength, as your hope, as your joy, and fix your mind on things that are above and let it transform the way that you live in this world, in this here and now, this week. Seth's going to come back up in a, in a moment. He's going to play for us. I would urge you to take some time. Take some time. Silently reflect. Pray. Ask God, show me where I'm living in my own strength. Show me where I'm setting my mind on things of earth and not things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Ask him, Father, give me hope. Remind me that my hope and my security is hidden with Christ in you forever. And it's not dependent on my performance. It's not dependent on how well I can obey. But we obey because we've been transformed. Our affections have been transformed. And so our actions follow our affections. We are his. Ask for help. And know with certainty that he'll give it. And if you're in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, if you've been transformed in the way that we talk today, and you've been baptized as a follower of Christ, once you've had a chance to reflect, get up, walk to the back, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the wine, and remember, set your mind on things that are above where Christ is. If you're not a Christian, if this sounds foreign to you this morning, if you thought you were walking into a place where we just talked about what you should do and what you shouldn't do and making your life better and more spiritual then I hope we've pulled the rug out from under that this morning. And we would love to talk to you more about what it means to be transformed by a Christ who lived and died and rose again. So if that's you, if you're not a Christian, then don't take communion this morning. Take Christ instead. Think about these things. And come grab myself, Pastor Dave, any of us here at Trinity, and ask ask us later on, how do I do this? We'd love to talk more about you to start that conversation. See Christ today. See Christ at his table. See Christ in his word. Set your minds on, that, on things that are above because your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Stand with me. We're going to read a passage from 1 Corinthians to, to prepare our hearts for communion, and then we'll reflect and continue in our worship. Paul said to the Corinthian church, for what I received from the Lord... I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that when the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You can have a seat. Take a moment, examine yourself, ask the Lord to reveal where your heart needs to change, and thank him for his goodness. Thank him for Christ. And as you take the bread and the wine this morning, remember, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's not your job to start your faith. It's not your job to perfect your faith. Walk in obedience this week, knowing that it's only in him that we have our hope. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that our lives are hidden with Christ, that our hope, our future, our identity, our glory are secure, not in our own strength, because it fails, but it's secure in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection. Father, help us to live as people who have died with Christ, as people who have been raised with Christ, as people who have had our eyes and our minds and our hearts taken heavenward where Christ is at your right hand. God, may we live under the rule of our true king, and not of the gods and the kings that that vie and elbow for our attention in this life. God, help us. Help us to diligently sit under your word, to be shaped by it, to be molded, to be able to fix our minds on things which are above. And Father, help us when we are discouraged, when we despair, to remember you have transformed us and you have showered us with your grace and that when we look to you we see hope and we see security God be with us as we go from here today help us to fix our minds to set our sights on what is heavenly, not what is of this world. Help us to see all things as under your rule and authority and to live for your glory in all things. God, these things we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.